Hello, and welcome to the Uncomfortable is OK podcast. I'm your host, Chris Desmond. This is a show where I get to chat with cool people doing interesting things. They inspire me, and hopefully you, to get out of our comfort zones through their actions and their ideas. We also get to hear about some of the uncomfortable situations that they've been in. Today's episode 43, I'm chatting with Dr. Saab Johal. Saab is a clinical psychologist and health psychologist. He holds two doctoral degrees, one from the University of Cardiff and one from the University of London. Saab's also the Associate Professor in Disaster Mental Health at Massey University. He has over 20 years experience working as a psychologist in various realms. Saab is also into a whole lot of other things, but today we focus mainly on the psychology aspects, uh, so I'll have to get him back again to chat about all the other stuff at, a, at another time. I first met up with Saab towards the end of last year, um, as he was starting out his own podcast, Who Cares? What's the Point? Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later in the show. Thankfully, I got to chat with him a little while about podcasting. Uh, Saab's a real nice guy, and I thought that he'd be able to teach me a lot, and hopefully you guys too. So today we have a chat about how Saab became a psychologist, including the uncomfortable path of going against expectations and traditions to do so. And we talk about the overarching themes of psychology and how the human experience is so different between individuals. We chat about the art of applying science, the mind-body connection, and how we and that how we think and the way we represent the world in our mind has a direct effect on us at a cellular level. Saab talks today about how we often don't do enough to train ourselves to deal with change, and he helps us change our attitudes to change and uncertainty. I had a great time talking with Saab. I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. Uh, let us know what you think of the conversation. You can tweet to us at ChrisDesmondNZ and at Saab. Um, and hopefully we'll get a chance to get Saab back for another chat. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with us today. G'day Saab, welcome to the Uncomfortable Is OK podcast. How are you this evening? I'm good, Chris. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm uh, interested to see where our conversation will take us. So am I, actually. Uh, I think it could go, yeah, multiple, multiple ways. So, um, yeah, one or the other of us might have to rein us back in at some point <laughs> if we sort of start to go too tangentially. Um, but I think, why don't we start... Um, you're a you're a psychologist hmm. based at, at, down in Wellington, um, but doing doing kind of work uh, sort of all over the place. Really, do you want to let us know how you came about becoming a psychologist initially? 
Yeah, I, I think one of the things that's interesting is that um, most psychologists, if not all psychologists I've met and read about, came to psychologists came to be a psychologist or to psychology by accident and intend on being a psychologist. And I think that's just as true for me. Um, I, I, uh, I grew up in London. Um, I've been living in, uh, in New Zealand for about 12 years now, just over 12 years. Um, and I choose to live here. It's a, it's a brilliant place. I love being in New Zealand, particularly in Wellington. I think it's a city that um, suits me very well. But it took me a long time to find here. Um, so I, I, I grew up in London. Uh, my parents were immigrants to the the UK from what is now Pakistan. Um, they were uh, it's now India, but they, they they had to move in the partition when the British left India. And um, my dad just about remembers that, but my mum doesn't. She was she was too young. But my dad won't really talk about his experience of that. Okay. But they moved over to to London in the 1960s, and uh, they didn't really have much when they moved over uh, my dad knew a few friends and so he mucked about with them for a while and then my mum and dad had a, an arranged introduction uh, and my dad went back to India and um, they met each other and um, they got to know each other and my dad went back to the UK and uh, they made a life together and um, I came along about a year later and you know I, I was uh, the first son on the male line um, so, so yeah, I was the oldest grandkid, and you know one of the things that uh, at, at that time Indian parents at that time were doing was trying to encourage their children to get into professions. You know, mm -hmm. get yourself a good profession, be a doctor, be a pharmacist, be a lawyer, be an accountant, that kind of thing. And so um, I struggled with that. Um, you know, I, I wasn't uh, that kind of kid. I don't think I was interested in all kinds of different things. So, um, you know, my parents and I fell out quite a lot about that as I kind of got into sort of like 13, 14. Um, I just uh, had to do a whole load of choosing around the path I was going to take at school level. At that age, you had to choose quite early on. This is like the 1980s in the UK. Um, and so we eventually uh, settled on me going away and doing business accounting and and uh, economics, mm -hmm. of all things, um, because essentially they wanted me to do medicine, and I said no because I'm squeamish. There's, there's just no no way that's going to work. So um, I went away, um, did my school, went to university, so uh, lucky enough to get a place, and I hated it. I really, really hated it. Uh, I hated the place, and I hated doing business economics and accounting. And the one saving grace was that I was doing psychology as my minor in my degree and I'd never come across psychology before I had considered interestingly being a geologist mm -hmm. um, and it's I don't think it's an accident that I've ended up working in disaster mental health where I work quite closely with um, geological phenomena and working with seismologists sometimes so I think that's that's interesting but yeah. I, I came to psychology totally by accident, and I found it absolutely fascinating. Yeah, what what drew you to psychology as a minor in the first place? I think I was looking for a blend uh, between science, mm -hmm. which is what I did. I did chemistry, biology, and physics at that sort of sixteen to eighteen year old period of your of my schooling, 
but I was really interested in the humanities. I was really interested in geography. I was really interested in English. I was really interested in literature. I was interested in history, but I had to kind of drop it when I was about 14. I was interested in French. I was interested in how people express themselves, but also how people were in their environments and how they connected with each other. And psychology was a bit of a, a mystery to me at that point. I wasn't really sure what it was about. And it's interesting because the, the stuff that I got really absorbed in was really basic stuff, operant conditioning. Mm-hmm. How do you teach um, animals, pigeons in this case, by, uh, how do you shape their behavior by rewarding them in different ways? And then the classical uh, conditioning stuff of, of Pavlov. I'd never come across this stuff before. And I spent pretty much three months solidly reading this this work and just ignoring my economics and accounting textbooks. And then I ended up dropping out uh, of university, which is really difficult and very uncomfortable for both me and my parents. My parents, because they, I think, talking with them subsequently, felt like they'd lost face in their community. You know, there's this oldest son on the male line and he goes away to university having not done a traditional profession that they wanted me to and he comes back and he says he wants to go and do this mysterious subject called psychology where there was no career path because there wasn't really uh, in, in that day you were kind of like a clinician or you were a researcher there wasn't really much available so for them it was really difficult and I think I've only come to appreciate that a bit later on for me it was you know i love this stuff i just want to go and study it for them it was like and we emigrated and we came to the uk for you to go and figure out what you want to do that's not what we want you to do we want you to be you know have a have a solid profession so that we feel like you're going to be stable and we've given up all this stuff for you uh, to to have this stable platform in your life and that all kind of came to a head at the time and that was something that you were aware of? Yeah, uh, I was. It, it, had, it had been percolating for a, a year or so. But what surprised me was that although I'd been ruminating on this and thinking about this for quite a long time, when I actually went to my parents with this dilemma, they were actually really understanding. They wanted to know more about what psychology was. They wanted to know more about, you know, where was this going to lead to for you? But they could see that I was absolutely miserable and had been miserable for about a year and and wanted me to go back and give it another try at the beginning of the second term in those days, they were called. Um, and I did. but and, and I tried changing, you know, location about where I was living and nothing, none of that was working. And so I, I, I did end up um, dropping out of university and going back. And having to go back to my old school and um, asking for another reference and all the stuff where, you know, it, it was a bit of a loss of face for me as well. Um, so, yeah, it was it was uncomfortable. But they actually, you know, when push comes to shove, they were um, they dealt with it really well. And they shielded me a lot uh, from from some of the family stuff that was going on um, in the extended family, which was really important for them. Mm, yeah, and I can imagine it, it must have been quite a massive internal conflict for them as well, is that they they obviously want to support you and make sure that you're happy with things, but they have societies, um, kind of 
expectations that they also want to to live up to and that must have been really really challenging yeah it was it, it was society it was um that they wanted me to have a you know a good platform to build my life but also you know sometimes communities that um move away from from their home countries can become quite insular mm. um not through not necessarily for for bad reasons um, you know people are pulling together and trying to support each other but they can be quite hypercritical of each other as well when people don't follow you know this is the chosen success path this is what you should be doing um and i think that my mum and dad experienced that um quite a lot um you know they were not the most conventional of people either so but they, they tried to be so i think that you know often um people can feel like they're being uh smacked into the wrong shape hole you know i was definitely mm. a, a square peg and the round holes that were being prepared for me weren't weren't i could see that they weren't going to fit yeah so what eventually kind of caused you to make that decision and to take the leap to into psychology away from business and accounting i think it was my friends i was lucky to have um uh yeah i was lucky to have such a good group of friends and i think partly we were such a good group of friends because of what we'd been through since uh, we were, you know, 10, 11 years old. You know, I, I really enjoyed primary school. I had a great time in primary school, um, secondary school, and it was really bad. I really missed two years of primary, of secondary school, so 11, 12, 13, um, experienced a lot of bullying, witnessed a lot of bullying, um, mainly mainly race-based bully, bullying. Um, it was the 1980s and the skinhead movement was um, really um, powerful. Um, my mum and dad actually ended up um, forfeiting their Indian citizenship and taking UK citizenship because the dialogue in mainstream politics was getting so extreme that they thought that they may actually be asked to leave the country and they didn't want that to happen. So they chose to relinquish their Indian citizenship, even though they had permanent residency in the UK. So I remember it being a, a difficult time because we would end up having family conversations about it. But there was a, you know, a group of us that um, experienced this together and were really good supports for each other um, during those years. You know, it got a lot better from when I was about 14, uh, 13, 14, really. There's a few, few things that caused that. But um, I think going back and talking with my friends who essentially – we would sit there and we would talk about, you know, how we would be, how would we get out of this situation where we were in a not particularly great school, comprehensive school in a not a particularly nice part of suburban London, where there was a lot of racist bullying and a lot of drugs, a lot of violence, a lot of people sort of, you know, drinking vodka in their um, empty pop cans during exams it was it was not a particularly great thing and the only thing that we could do we could figure out was you either joined a gang um you dealt drugs on the side or you studied like hell and you got out and there was a whole group of us that basically studied like hell and got out um and so going back to the, that group and saying look i think i've actually messed up here i, th I don't think i've made a good decision and uh, I'm wondering what to do next. Um, I got some really good advice from these, you know, group of 17, 18, 19 year olds that I grew up with 
as well as going back to old teachers and my parents. Um, and, and without those social connections, I think I could have got caught up in my own head and got trapped into the I don't want to disappoint my parents route. And I sometimes wonder what that alternate reality path for me would have looked like. And I don't think it would have been a very happy one. No, no. I don't think we'd be talking today, probably. <laughs> no. Interesting. So when you when you got into psychology full time, was it kind of like something just clicked for you and, and you thought, okay, this is this is what I'm supposed to be doing? Mm, not so much. I think um because I was quite new to it, the first two or three years were um, were just really exploring what it was that I found interesting. Because there are many branches of psychology that um, I could have gone down. So, um, and to be honest, I was having quite a good time as well at, at university. Um, so I was trying to balance all of that, you know, having left home and gone to university and but also experiencing a lot of, of the world you know i am um, i was i grew up in very materialistic southeast of of england um in london and it was it was revolting actually looking back on it uh, and it, you know interest rates were really high um people were struggling yet all you saw was this gross materialism and consumerism and I was repelled by that. So I went and I knew some friends in the north of England and they said, you should come here because it is it is really, really very different. And that sounds like a gross generalization because the north of England is very different according to where, where you go. But I ended up going to the East Riding of Yorkshire. I went to, to Hull University and I had a couple of friends there and, uh, and a few others across in Sheffield and Leeds and places like that. And that was very, very different. So I think it wasn't just psychology. I think it was also a very different attitude to what life was meant to be like and how people were experiencing life. So there was a lot more social deprivation, which is a real eye-opener. I mean, you see that in London, but it wasn't like I'd, I, I saw when I went to the north of England. But there was also um, a sense of social connection, which is very different to what I'd experienced before as well. Um, and that was really interesting to me. And I think it, it, that's probably what um, sowed the seed for me actually coming to, to New Zealand and being able to explore through my interest of how societies are, even within a particular society, the differences and the interesting intricacies of behavior um, that um, come from those differences, those quite broad cultural differences or subcultural differences. So I think it was more that it was more learning about psychology in the context of these cultural differences that I was experiences, experiencing, but also bringing my own cultural experience to that as well. There weren't many Indian immigrants in Hull. Um, so, you know, I get, you know, I still couldn't escape the, you know, being chased into, a safe place or a safe pub by a group of skinheads. All of that stuff was still going on. Um, nothing ever really bad happened, but um, yeah, all of that stuff was still going on in the background. But um, yeah, so so that was a, the initial part. But I was lucky enough to win a scholarship um, to go and do a PhD, and so I moved to um, Cardiff in South Wales, which again was a completely different 
um, culture and I managed to immerse myself in um, really just health psychology, the idea that um, how we think uh, influences our, our bodies and our bodies influence how, what we, how we think and feel. Uh, and there's that bi-directional, actually much more complex relationship between how, how, my, how our minds and bodies work together, which at that stage was in its infancy in the UK, although this idea of behavioral medicine was much bigger in the US at that point. For those that aren't overly familiar with the area of psychology, Saab, is that uh, quite a niche area or what? Probably, uh, can you give us a kind of an overarching viewpoint of kind of what psychology is about and what sort of uh, some of the main fields in it are? So, yeah, so psychology is essentially understanding behavior. So that's a really broad definition and it can cut, it can go down to, you know, the idea of how do we develop language? How do we use language as as a species? How does that emerge? So you're, you're going to much more kind of evolutionary psychology uh, and how it is that perhaps we have chose, we have ended up with um, sexual differences and how those sexual differences show themselves in the behavior that we have in the cultural context that we live in. So that's one end of it. Another end of it is maybe neuroscience that people have heard about. So this idea that the way that we are wired, the way that um, our neurons are attached together, um, determine how we experience the world, but how we are in the world. And we can see that. You know, anybody who's had children or hangs around children can see that. So there's a whole field of developmental psychology, child psychology, adolescent psychology. So really, that's one another way of looking at it is looking at life stages. Then there's... Um, this idea of clinical psychology. So the idea that we can use um, psychological interventions to improve people's lives when they are going through really difficult times. And those difficult times can show themselves through mental health uh, symptoms um, or through relationship issues. So the difficulties that parents have with their children or children with other children or parents with their own parents or all kinds of different ways of, of framing that. Um, and those difficulties show themselves in anxiety, depression, perhaps experiencing unexplained physical symptoms, all sorts of different things. And psychology is just a little part of that, but it can be a very effective way. But you can't ignore the social and cultural context so we hear a lot about poverty and deprivation so psychology can't really be divorced from that mm. so I very much take a, a a community psychology approach you really need to embed people and understand them in their communities rather than treating them or working with them as individualized little atoms floating around the universe that's not how people are connected or wired mm. yeah yeah so kind of it even say someone that lived in the in the city in New Zealand, um, from a kind of looking at them from a purely psycho or from a psychological standpoint, you may need to approach them quite differently to someone that lived in rural New Zealand, say, just based on what their environment's like um, and the social interactions that they have. Yeah, absolutely, and that rural environment um, in New Zealand. It's also different from a rural environment, say, in China. Mm. Okay, you, you have a very different experience there. So you, 
you can't take the person out of their context and actually have it make sense because their whole experience up to that point of when they met you um, is very, very different. And even if, when you're growing up or talking to people in the same society, um, you know, that rural experience that I might have in, say, Gisborne may be very different to that rural experience that I may have down in Southland or in South Canterbury. Okay, So even within a culture, I have learned the hard way that you cannot make assumptions about um, people's experience just because you label them as rural or urban or Māori or Pacifica or Pākehā or, or anything else, you know. And I think that's one of the things that I um, I learned in my own journey of psychology. You know, when I was when I was first trained, it was very much about the statistics. Mm-hmm. It was very much about you know making broad generalizations about people's experience based upon a study that's been done, perhaps on a fairly um, skewed sample perhaps white undergraduates in American universities. And then suddenly this is being generalized to a whole population that have got nothing in common with, with that study. Because the assumption is that if you find it in these people, the human experience must be so similar that you're going to find it in this other population too. And I had a real falling out with that idea as I um, got through my doctoral training and then spent a few years working, then went back to university and and trained as clinical psychologist. The reason I did that is because I started to feel like I couldn't teach this stuff and feel like I had integrity because it didn't feel true. And the evidence in various research projects that I was doing convinced me that this is a very blinkered way of looking at the world. And I became much more interested in people's stories and what led them to the path, led them on the path where I had met them on that day and they had come into the clinic, the office, the cafe, wherever it was that I was talking to them. And we were having a conversation about what was going on in their lives. And only through understanding that unique pathway do you get to make or help them and work with people to design interventions that make a meaningful difference in their lives rather than superimposing a system upon this person who may get some benefit from it, but actually is it lasting? I have real questions over that. Mm, Yeah, that's, that's really interesting actually. And I think, I mean, population based statistics are in studies are good and they're important and kind of helping shape policy decisions and things like that but actually when you're dealing with people they are they are population-based statistics and not those individual statistics and as you say that you you need to make sure that you're approaching anyone in the context that they come from because they've been shaped by their experiences shaped by their environment um their culture as well um yeah, if you if you generalize, then you might you might hit the target occasionally, but you you miss so many more times with that. I agree with you. I think the population based statistics approach is really important, and it increases the likelihood that you're in the right ballpark. 
I think that that's absolutely true. But I think relying upon that solely without understanding the con- the context in which you are operating in order to um, bring those interventions to bear so that they make a difference in people's lives, I don't know if we pay enough attention to that. No. Do you think we're starting to understand the importance of that more as uh, kind of as health professionals and as a as a society? I, I do, and I think that part of the issue it's it's interesting we're getting a little bit technical here and i won't spend too long on it but it's the idea that actually you can take an off-the-shelf intervention and you can uh, work with someone and go through these you know 16 16 sessions and the outcome is probably going to be okay at a population level Yes, you may get an improvement, but for an individual and tailoring that to the individual, that's where the clinical art comes in. Mm-hmm. So, yes, you have a science that informs the type of intervention that may be useful for people presenting or coming along with particular difficulties. There's a science to that that's completely valid. But the artist trying to apply the approaches, methods, and techniques that you met, you have during your training to actually make a difference and to select the right one that is coherent and makes a difference that really speaks to this person, you know, and that, that's, that's the trick. Mm. And I don't know if our, um, if, if we pay enough attention to that in the way that we train people yeah. who are working in that mental health field. Mm. Yeah. I like that actually, that it, and I think kind of that that's almost across the board that everything is a mixture of science and art and often that art is in the in the application of the science to whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah, I, I really like that. Um, let's jump back a little bit. Mm. So we, we've talked kind of overarchingly a little bit about psychology. What do you, what drew you to that health psychology um, and kind of that that mind body connection? What was it about that that sort of sparked your interest? If I'm honest, it was I was in the green field of Glastonbury Festival, uh, and I think it must have been when was it? It would have been 1989, I think something like that. Maybe 1990 actually. No, it was 1990, and um, I picked up a few books uh, looking around these bookshelves and it was a book called um, Think Yourself Healthy. And it wasn't like many of the other books that I was picking up full of stuff that wasn't particularly well evidenced. It was actually a referenced book that had stuff in there which was intriguing, absolutely intriguing to me, particularly the field, which is this idea of uh, your psychoneuroimmunology so this is the idea that um the way you think the way your attitudes towards how you deal with problems in your life has a fundamental effect upon how your immune system functions now that to me was amazing the fact that you could draw a line from the way you think to how your immune system functions that sold it to me and there was no one doing that at my university I had to lobby a lecturer and say, I want you to run a third year undergraduate course on health psychology because no one is doing it. And I can't go to any of the universities here and get cross credit for it. And he said, if you can get 20 people to sign up for it, then I'll, I'll run it. 
and I got 20 people within a day who would be who were interested. I, I basically showed them these papers and said, look at this. We don't know anything about this. We don't get taught this. We should be being taught this. This is going to be the big thing. Um, and, and it has. It, it's proved to be this this idea around, you know, it's kind of sprouted into this broader idea of neuroscience, this idea um, as, a, as a subset of that, the idea that the, we, the way that we think, the way that we represent the world in our minds has a, makes a difference to us at a fundamental cellular level is was big news to me. And I was particularly interested in health. I was particularly interested in um, the idea that not only the way that we think may improve our health, but when we experience illness, how does that impact upon how we think or how we perform? So I found a, um, a guy who was um, based in Cardiff at the time, a guy called Andrew P. Smith, who turned out to be my um, PhD supervisor. And I approached him and I said, what's this stuff that you're doing on the common cold and flu and how it impacts upon how we think? And he invited me over to um, come and discuss it with him. And he had a whole research program on um, how people's attention was um, really badly affected uh, when they had a cold and how certain things like caffeine actually improved people's attention when they were suffering from things like the common cold. Um, and he'd um, done a whole lot of work at the Common Cold Research Centre, which has uh, since um, been disestablished in the UK. But that for me, that meeting with Andrew P. Smith set me on a completely uh, different path in my career. Um, so that's when I went to go and do my PhD in, at Cardiff University. Yeah, that's I mean, it, it's a fascinating concept. And, and I think that it's not one that uh, people think about that much. Obviously, if you stop and ask yourself a question, you think, well, when I'm sick, when I've got a cold or when I've got the flu, definitely my thinking's slower, it seems a little bit foggier, and it's, uh, and it's a little bit worse. But it's not it's not something that kind of believe that there is a lot of research out there about um and is there is that research base just growing and growing at the moment yeah it is yeah. it's a it, it's a very big field now mm. um you you get a lot of it's a bigger research field uh, than it is probably a practitioner field we have courses mm. um in in new zealand that you could take on it it's it's a bigger field in the uk it's a huge field in in the u.s because um because of the way the insurance system works, often you can go and see a health psychologist who may have some some interventions that are uh, designed to to improve how it is that your immune system is functioning, or um, maybe with things like sleep. They're also cheaper than clinical psychologists um, to, to to employ, um, and they have a different skill set. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a big issue, um, you know, particularly in things like. Um, Say say oncology, say cancer. Um, there's there's a huge um, field of work associated with the impacts of of cancer on people's lives, but also on their relationships and the way that they um, they think can also improve things like um, how they respond to particular drug treatments or how you think and how you your attitude towards life uh, influences things like how quickly you um, your wounds heal as well post-surgery 
So we're, we're uncovering more and more uh, of these links between how we think and our attitude towards life and our basic physical performance and healing and recovery. So we understand that how we think affects recovery and, and, and uh, sort of responsiveness after, after surgery and things. We know that that happens do we know kind of from an anatomical or pathological level exactly why that happens yet? Or that's, that's something that we'll get to sometime in the future. I, I think it's something that's a work in progress. You know, the, the interesting thing, if we just take the immune system, it's like this giant Jenga puzzle, you know, you move one bit and then the rest of it kind of moves a little bit too in response to that. It's almost like this big self-correcting system. So you may see, you know, with one experiment, changes in one part of the immune system but not in others. And then with another experiment, you might see different parts of the immune system affected, either boosted or reduced as a result of participating or, or whatever it is they're manipulating in that experiment. So we don't have um, – an overall coherent picture around this, but it's getting better and better all mm. the time. But even if we don't understand the mechanisms, it doesn't mean that we still, we can't benefit. Yeah. You know, there are lots of things where we don't understand why this works, but we know that if we set up this condition, then this tends to follow afterwards. This, the Holy grail of why is, is the thing that we're seeking in in the link between behavior and and um you know physical performance or physical recovery but we can still do how quite well so how does this condition if we you know say the the big thing at the moment has been for the last wee while has been mindfulness um but also compassion so how is it when we are more compassionate with ourselves how is it that Im that improves how we are in our families, how we are in our workplaces, how we are in adhering to things like medical um, prescriptions that are given to us? You know, all of these things we can see that there are links between those really helpful self practices and beneficial physical outcomes, but we don't necessarily understand the minutiae about every single piece in the puzzle um, in that mechanistic chain that leads to those benefits. Mm. Interesting. And obviously you're okay with not understanding the why at the moment. <laughs> this is, this is kind of going to sound a little bit bad as a generalized population. <laughs> do you think that we're okay with, only knowing the how and not knowing the why. Do you know what? That's a really interesting question. And I, and I think you just reminded me of a conversation I had with um, when I, when I, when I finished my clinical training, I had a few conversations with some of my tutors and I said, these last three years have taught me that my basic function as a clinician is helping people come to terms with uncertainty. That's it. That's my main job because I can't give them certainty. Nobody can have certainty in their lives. Apart from that, we're, we're likely to die. You know, that might change in the, in the next, you know, few decades or so. But what life will look like is maybe very different, but that's it. That, that, that is basically my job as a clinician working with behavior, working with people's mental health difficulties is 
helping them to work with uncertainty, helping everybody. And that was challenging for me too. For somebody who was trained in a positivistic, there is an objective truth. This is the answer and this is how you get there. For me to take a step back and say, actually, that's not a very fair representation of people's lives. Uh, you know, there's chaos. There's chaos introduced everywhere. You know, the best laid plans are go awry for all sorts of reasons. You know, what they say is, you know, plans, you know, you make plans and God laughs at you. Um, you know, and, and that's very true. You know, you can plan and plan and plan and planning is good. But when they go wrong, what do you do? And that is what throws people. It's when your plans go wrong. Can you adapt to your plan going wrong and then then come up with another plan that enables you to live a worthwhile life, given the context that you you're living in? So, yeah, I don't know if we are very good at it, mm. at uncertainty. I, I know that I struggle with it. You know, but I then at the same time, you know, one of the reasons why I agree to do this is that I love the name of the podcast that you you do. The uncomfortable is okay. I think is probably one of the, my major learnings of three years of doctoral clinical training. You can sum up in those three words. Yeah, good, good. <laughs> um, no, I'm I'm glad that you like that. Um, how do we get better at being okay with the uncertainty? Are there things that we can do? I think it's uh, – uh, this sounds like a bit of a, a weird segue, but I'm going to talk about Donald Trump okay. for a second. What he's done, and I don't, I don't agree with it, with, with, with his politics. I don't agree with a lot of what he's doing. Um, not all of it. You know, I think that the American infrastructure has completely been neglected over the last 20, 30 years, and I think that that needs work. It's about the only thing I do agree with him on. But what he has done is that he's reminded us of how uncomfortable it is when the status quo is changed. You know, for a good couple of decades now, since the fall of the Berlin Wall, we've lived in a world where that Cold War threat has not really existed for us. That's a very personal point of view here. You know, I grew up in London where I was next to Heathrow Airport. I lived near a couple of RAF bases. I think I came to terms with the idea, not in a comfortable way, when I was about 11 or 12, that the last thing that I would see in my life would probably be a bright fresh flash of light. Um, other people are living with um, far worse circumstances on a day-to-day -day basis. I totally accept that. But I think what Donald Trump has disturbed for millions of people living in Western democracies in relatively safe surroundings is that actually safety is relative. And if you let a madman loose in a chicken coop, there's going to be casualties. And I think for a lot of people, touching base again with that uncertainty, for those people who have lived with it before, it's familiar. And it may reawaken a lot of stuff for them that they haven't had to deal with for a long time. And their circumstances may have changed. You know, for me, becoming a father changed my outlook on life completely. You know, I've got another little person here that's relying upon me. So I'm more scared having had a child than I think I would have been if I was on my own. That's completely hypothetical. That's, that's what I think. So for a lot of people whose circumstances may have changed, where they have dependents, where they're looking at this 
change in regime in America and all that that's bringing up for them. I think that this is essentially making their future and their lives a lot more uncertain. And we're seeing this go across the world. We're seeing Brexit, the vote for Brexit, throw up a lot of uncertainty for those millions who are living in the UK or who are related to those people in the UK. We're seeing the French general elections and what's going on in the EU now. All of this is throwing a lot more uncertainty. And because we're living in this globalized economy, we're also subject to that. You know, we may not have experienced the full follow through of those impacts yet, but I think that this is going to throw a lot more uncertainty our way, not just in the present, but for our future work plans, our future family plans, our future retirement plans. All of these suddenly, I think, are going to be um, having we'll have to renegotiate our relationship to them. And that was already underway. You know, we, we, we look at what work might look like in the future. And we see this gig economy that's emerged over the last wee while and how um, disenfranchised people are in that. You know, all the benefits that come from stable and steady employment mean that we are now having to start considering things like a universal basic income. You know, how is it that we are going to provide for people to have a decent quality of life that removes some of this uncertainty? Because that's essentially what it's going to do. It's something that you're going to be able to count upon and say, actually, this is something that I know is always going to be there and I can plan my life with that in mind. So we're, we're starting to come up with some ideas that are being thrown into the mix. And if you look at what those ideas are actually designed to do, they're trying to remove that uncertainty in our lives, which is being freshly introduced as a result of events over the last year or two. Hmm. Yeah, again, really, really interesting. Um, so that's kind of looking at it from a societal perspective as um, looking to help deal with uncertainty. From a, from an individual perspective, are there ways that a, a again, generalisation here, um, are there ways that a person yeah. could help improve their relationship with uncertainty? The temptation is to ignore it mm-hmm. and to bury your head in the sand and to become super entrenched in what it is that you're doing. And this is where the, you know, this, you know, you get some quite conservative um, reactions to that. People just kind of hunkering down. And I'm not saying that that's sometimes not valuable. You know, routine is really valuable in times of uncertainty. And we've seen this in the, in the, in the disaster field and where I work, we've seen this in things like, you know, if you've got a, a small child who's having a difficult time um, because they've got changes going on in their lives, which is bringing up uncertainty. One of the best things that you can do is to really stick to the routines that helps to ground them in who they are and their place in the world. So that's one of the things that you can do is to really think and be very intentional about what it is that you're doing and why you're doing it. And if it's working for you, to keep doing it, to make that part of your routine in your life. But the other thing that I would say that would be helpful is to start to try to practice an attitudinal shift that change and uncertainty are normal. Because often we see change and uncertainty as something that's unusual because we tend to 
value lives that don't change all that much. You know, you get the odd thrill seeker and sensation seeker who loves it and wants that change you all the time. But the majority of people like a bit of that, but most of the time they like it to stay pretty straight and narrow. And so that predictability becomes very reassuring. If we start to start thinking about actually perhaps there are going to be days where that's not going to happen and perhaps that they may start happening a bit more often as we're seeing with things like the weather, then how we react to that then starts to define our well-being. And um, I don't think we talk enough about how we do that as a community, as a society. How do we skill up our young people to deal with change? How do we do that as adults growing up where the workplace and how we are in our society is fast changing? You know, how do we have those conversations and build up those skills? Mm. Do you have any uh, theories of ways that we can do that as a society? <laughs> this is this is getting deep now. <laughs> if I did, I'd patent them and I wouldn't tell you. Uh, <laughs> Don't put them out on the podcast. <laughs> you can tell no. me that off air. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we do, we've just been talking about uh, changing our attitude to change and and uncertainty actually and i mean with with what you're talking about before with the with that mind body connection if we take a more positive attitude towards change and towards uncertainty that should hopefully make us healthier as people when we have to deal with it is that right yeah i i think that that's right because you know we do deal with change and uncertainty all the time, you know, and it's remembering what we did that worked in that time of, of change and uncertainty. Um, yeah, you know, and that's worked for me a few times in my life when I've, I've faced uncomfortable challenges, you know, trying to draw upon what it is that I've done in the past or what it is that I've learned from other people and my experience with them, because, you know, we are social beings, no matter how, you know, um, parallel we may wish to live our lives with other people in our communities you know even if we try to isolate ourselves it's actually quite difficult to do that we're going to come across other people and using that those crossovers and and cultivating those relationships and those crossovers and what we can learn from other people who perhaps have been through different things in our lives you know the internet um, is great for that you know the idea that you know podcasts are growing as a medium through which people are able to tell their stories. But we also see this increased listenership, people wanting to hear stories as well. You know, so it's a great resource as well as being a massive distraction and can, you know, result in our um, attentional uh, mechanisms being really quite hijacked and, and, and us not being able to concentrate. There's, there's also an enormous force for for good there if we can be intentional about how we use it. Okay, yeah. And what um, what practices do you use yourself um, to create positive, uh, positive attitudes to to change and to uncertainty that you face? Or just in your in your day to day activity, are there certain <coughs> things that you do to keep your keep yourself mentally healthy? 
you know, they're, they're going to sound really boring. Um, but you know what? Things like sleep. I really notice if I haven't slept enough that my attitude can stink. Um, I also notice that if I don't talk to people often enough, I can become quite cut off from other people's experience. So I can, if I spend a whole day with my head down and working or doing something, I can feel that I'm qualitatively different when I'm with other people. And I feel almost a bit like a stranger to myself. And I almost have to grow back into myself before I'm in a space where I can positively be with other people. And, you know, one of the things that we say when we're working with people, I do anyway, and I know others do, I'm not sure if everybody does, is that when you're transitioning from one place to another, give yourself time and mark that transition. So, you know, things like people will often say things like, you know, well, I'll come home and this kicks off because I haven't had enough time to actually get home and get myself being back into home mode. So for me, I remember going through something like that and I would find myself five minutes either sitting in the car or doing something else if you've got a bit more time and almost rehearsing what is it that I'm who is it that I'm going to be which part of me is going to be to the forefront when I'm in this situation and giving yourself time to bring that person that part of you to the forefront one thing that I've really learned is something again really simple is changing my clothes so when I come home from work um, particularly when I used to work in a lab a long time ago in a hospital you know you had to do that from a from a hygiene or a point of view. But I found that actually getting getting changed into my home clothes meant that my home me came out more than my work me, which is a very different me. So I think that we don't do that enough. We don't signal our transitions through things like changing our clothes or perhaps even simply putting our slippers on or taking our shoes off and walking around barefoot. You know, these signal that I'm in a different space now. Me being barefoot means I'm much more relaxed and I'm home. I'm connected to the ground in a different way than I am if I'm wearing my shoes, particular shoes, high heel shoes, whatever shoes. Um, that signals a different me. So I think that's something that we don't use enough is how we manipulate all these things, all these accessories and all these tools that we have, you know, in order to bring different parts of ourselves to the fore because we are complicated creatures. We learn all these different things and tricks around how to manage ourselves and which bit of ourselves, which language set that we use. I use a different language set that I at work than I would do when I'm at home. I even use a different accent set. You know, when I'm talking to people from the UK, my London accent comes out and I'm talking like that all the time. But when I'm here or if I'm at work, then it's a completely different accent set that I use. And I'm not totally consciously aware of it all the time, but I try to be a bit more intentional around it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, that that kind of change your clothes, change your um changing your attitude is a really uh, it's a really easy thing that people can do as well um, but some of the other stuff that you mentioned the sleep um, the talking to people um, obviously both of them are quite important as well but everyone is going to have something slightly different that works for them 
and I think another point that you that you made there about taking time for that transition is important, but also taking time to ask yourself those questions and have a little bit of a look about and figure out what does work for you. And you might need to try a few different things to see how you respond to each of them. Um, and speaking of sleep, I'm mindful of the time as well. I want to make sure you get a good sleep tonight. So I'm going to ask you some questions now that uh, I ask everybody that comes on the show. So the first one is, sure. can, you, can you tell me about a time that you failed and what you learned from it? A time that I failed and what I learned from it. Um, that's interesting. I, I tend not to think of things as failures. Things go wrong. Things don't go as planned. Um, but I don't know if I failed. I mean, I could frame me dropping out of university as a failure. And a lot of people did. Um, and I, I think I did to start off with. I, that felt like a failure. Um, what I learned from it was that it's okay. It's okay to fail. When I first came to New Zealand, here, here's one. When I first came to New Zealand, I was meant to be here for a year. I lasted about eight months and I became very, very unhappy. And I started to become quite upset with myself because I felt like I was failing. Uh, you know, that's a pretty harsh judgment. You move halfway around the world uh, and you're not happy after eight months of, you know, leaving your friends and your family behind. I think what I learned from that failure, if I want to call it that, is that I can be really harsh on myself and that people are really important to me. Relationships are really important to me. So I went, I went back to the UK and I spent three, four weeks back at the UK and I actually got into my head the idea that it was okay to fail. It would be okay for me to go back and it didn't work out. And as soon as I gave myself permission to fail, it felt okay again. So for me, it was perhaps you've hit upon something there is that I don't think I don't call things failure, but when I am allow myself to call thing call something a failure, I'm okay with it. Good. What was the last uncomfortable thing that you did and how did you get through it? The last uncomfortable thing that I did. Um, how did I get through it? Uh, it's probably not the last thing, but one of the most um, memorable things was um, hitting my head on a tree running the Tarawera Ultra Marathon at about the eight kilometer point knocking myself out, getting up, and then finishing the 60K ultramarathon in a lot slower time than I thought I was going to and finishing concussed, which I didn't actually realize. Although I was a clinical psychologist, clearly I put that part of me in my, <laughs> in my uh, rucksack back in the hotel room. Um, and sheer stubbornness got me through that. I wasn't after a year and four marathons of training for that event, I wasn't not going to complete it. I don't really care about my time. I was going to crawl over that finishing line. Um, so, yeah, I can be a very stubborn person when I want to be, uh, and that's what I was. <laughs> yeah. So what's the next uncomfortable thing that you're going to do? The next uncomfortable thing I'm going to do. Um, 
When's this going to go out? This will go out uh, next week. Okay. So that's all right. It'll be public knowledge by then. Uh, the next uncomfortable thing I'm going to do is, pro- is um, I'm going to be a father again. Congratulations. Not before Thank next you. week. Um, no, not before next <laughs> week, but that's what I'm going to start telling people is this weekend. Okay, good. I've already got it planned. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I think people would know by then. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. So that's yeah, that's going to be the next uncomfortable. It's something that I'm going to be um, very much looking forward to, but it's going to mean a lot of changes, um, and I welcome those. But it's going to be uncomfortable too. Yeah. Excellent. Oh, fantastic. Um, so, so a couple more questions for you. But actually, I just want to have a uh, brief chat. You also have a podcast called "Who Cares? What's the Point?" Can you tell us a? Uh, me and the listeners a little bit about that and uh, why we should listen to it. Sure. Well, you know, I'm um, a big believer in um, psychology and spreading the wealth of psychology. But I think um, one of the things that um, uh, irritates me a little bit is about how this knowledge is locked up in journals. And how that psychologists can sometimes be reticent a little in coming forward to talk about their research. So I wanted to tackle two things. I wanted to get psychologists talking about their research because I think actually some of it's really interesting and really useful and we don't hear enough about it. Um, But also I wanted to free some of this knowledge from being locked up in academic journals written by academics for academics. And I wanted people to be able to hear psychologists talking about this in lay language. That's not dumbing it down. It's still just as complex as it was, but it's not the sort of dry language that you'll hear in a, in a journal or read in a journal. So, yeah, we've, I've run um, a season and that was uncomfortable. I, and I very much appreciate talking to you about um, your podcast. Um, but learning how to do this and then do all the production, all the rest of it, that was that was uncomfortable. But, I, you know, I, I'm a stubborn person, as I, as I noted before. So I uh, persevered and, uh, and I got through it, found some really good resources, found some really good people and some really good people to talk to. And one of them in particular was uh, Professor Sam Weinberg in uh, Stanford University talking about distinguishing facts from fiction on a post-truth internet. And this came out a couple of weeks before the Trump inauguration. So that's a good one. That's about 40 minutes long. And it gives you some really handy tips around how you fact check yourself if you're trying to trying to read through the internet. The interesting thing that Sam said was that he'd just done this experiment on academics and they were just as bad as school kids uh, in distinguishing facts from fiction on the internet. And that really gave me pause for thought, uh, and, and I wanted to find out why. The other thing that I wanted to do in this podcast was really promote New Zealand psychology. Um, I think, again, we, we've got a lot to offer the world, and often um, you know, we're seen as little old New Zealand, and, and, and people don't necessarily read uh, a lot about what's going on here, and there's some really exciting stuff going on here. Um, so, yeah, one of the um, podcasts was at the uh, end of the series – talking about um, whether dehydration, uh, our um, state of how much water we've got on board, can affect how we perceive pain. Um, And this could have a massive impact upon things like medication use um, and and, um, how doctors may treat 
people who are experiencing chronic pain in particular. It's a very early stage of research, but it's a really interesting conversation to, to listen to. Mm. And I haven't, as I was saying before, I haven't had a listen to that one, but I'm, I'm fascinated by it. And I would really encourage everyone to have a listen to Saab's podcast. We'll put a link to it in the notes for the show as well, because really interesting conversations with kind of from a vast array of topics. So your your fake news, fact versus fiction. Uh, there's one on creepiness, um, one on eating habits in, in schools as well. Uh, yeah, just very, very interesting. There'll be something there for everyone, I think. Um, so Saab, a couple more quick questions for you. But first, I just want to say thanks for your time today. It's been really interesting uh, to have a chat with you hopefully we haven't got too technical for uh, for some of the people out there uh, we may have dived into it a little bit at, at some points um <laughs> but also i want to thank you for a couple of other things as well i want you to th- want to thank you for helping me and hopefully helping the listeners a bit get a little bit more okay with being uncomfortable and being uncertain and with with change and helping us understand why these things are uncomfortable and kind of how that uh, interplays with our with our body as well and how our body's feeling at the same time Um, and also I want to thank you as well for promoting interesting psychological research as well with your podcast so my next question for you is if people want to support you or find out more about the podcast and the stuff that you do where can they go how can they do that? Um, they can find the podcast on um, iTunes if you search for Who Cares, What's the Point? Or there's um, the Libsyn site. So that's wcwtp.libsyn.com. And I've actually got a um, fundraiser at the moment as well. So if you do listen to the podcast and you you think it's valuable and you wouldn't mind uh pitching in um you can even pitch in as little as five dollars um, that would be really helpful in helping me um get season two and three up on the road so you can um find that on um the pledge me website and uh, the short url for that is tinyurl.com forward slash wcwtp who cares what's the point excellent and you have your own website as well should people go there to, I do, to yes. cheap out, check out some of yeah. your other musings? Yeah, there's um, uh, so my day job is uh, associate professor in disaster mental health at Massey University. Uh, I'm also a clinical psychologist, as I've been talking about. So you can find um, stuff that I write about. I also write about technology and health for GIFGAF, which is a um, UK mobile phone network. So all of that is on saabjohal.com. And there's also um, who cares what's the point.com as well if you want to find episodes uh, for each of the podcast shows. Fantastic. So there'll be a whole list of links in the show notes of, of places to find you. Sub, so last question before we wrap up Do you have any advice or life lessons or interesting facts to leave me and the listeners with? Do you know what? I, I, I went to a talk. Uh, a while ago and this really stuck with me and that is don't be afraid of the random walk career the problem with pre-planning your life too much is that it closes off opportunities that come 
and make themselves known to you, but you don't recognize them as opportunities because you're too focused on going to your destination. So be open enough and be flexible enough to see opportunities for what they are. And don't be afraid to take big sideways steps because you know, I've come to learn and understand from other people's experience as well as mine is that life can take you to some very strange places. I never thought I'd be a disaster mental health psychologist, yet I seem to have been doing this for at least 10 years now. <laughs> um, and there's many, many other experiences like that. But they only come if you're open to opportunity and you don't know what that's going to look like. So be as open as you can when it comes knocking. Mm, awesome being uh okay with being uncomfortable and thanks for getting uncomfortable with me tonight Saab hey thanks Chris I've really enjoyed our conversation and I uh, I hope that um it doesn't come across as uh too technical or um too long <laughs> an explanation <laughs> I, I realize I can talk a lot too <laughs> I'm sure it won't but if people uh, have questions then flick them through to us we'll try and answer some of them well, what did you think of that? Uh, I really enjoyed sitting down and having a chat with Saab and getting his insights and ideas, uh, and I hope that you guys did too. As I said earlier, um, I'm going to have to get him back on the podcast at some point to have a chat about a whole raft of other topics. We weren't quite sure where this conversation was going to go, but um, I think it uh, it ended up going in quite a quite a good direction. And also, make sure that you check out Saab's podcast, Who Cares What's the Point? Uh, really, really interesting conversations um, about human behavior um, that often you just wouldn't think about. Now, also, if you guys enjoyed the conversation, make sure you sh share it out on social media. Um, subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get uh, the Uncomfortable is OK podcast in your ears every week. Uh, and give us a follow on, on Facebook or on Instagram as well at Uncomfortable is OK. As always, thanks to my brother Jeremy Desmond for the amazing theme music that he provides. Uh, and thank you all again for taking the time to get uncomfortable with me and Saab today. Thank you.